This episode of Death by DVD features topics such as self-harm and suicide. We ask our audience to please listen at their own risk. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? Described as smooth. Smoother than the smoothest surface sold in Smooth and Company. It's Pierce Brosnan in an article from the Irish Times from April 19th, 2013 by Tara Brady. And I'm your host, Hank. That was misleading, wasn't it? But it's just me. It's just Hank. I really got gypped in the name department. No last name, no middle name, just Hank. And to make it worse, I live in parts unknown. So getting mail is, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you can't just write Hank, parts unknown, question mark, question mark, question mark on an envelope and send it off with a few stamps. It's hard. It's a real challenge. I am constantly fighting at the post office, arguing, just, just trying to get my mail. But anyhow, welcome to Death by DVD, and let's move on. We've got a weekly scene. A weekly scene I've seen before. In fact, this is my second time seeing this weekly scene. But of course, I guess it wasn't a weekly scene the first time I saw it. Carving Magic from 1959 by the legendary H.G. Lewis. Now, the first time I saw this movie, I was bamboozled, I guess one could say, into seeing it because I guess bamboozled wouldn't be correct. I mean, I was misled, so... I feel there was some bamboozlement going on. But I thought it was, you know, ooh, it's an early H.G. Lewis movie. It's from 1959. This is alluring. This this is something I'm interested in. I want to check it out. And then when I finally found it and I watched it, I thought, oh, okay, then this is this is like one of those Christopher Guest things. It's really clever, and it's going to be some humor underlying this whole thing. It's a parody, a parody. And it isn't. It is about cutting and carving meat, the decadent and tricky nature of cutting and carving meat and all the different types of meat cuts and the different types of knives one would use for doing it. It's a, it's an infomercial, educational infomercial, I guess. But the second time I watched it, I actually had some questions about cutting meat, and I thought, hey, why not dust this off at H.G. Lewis? But the reason I'm babbling about this is because Lewis was known as the godfather of gore, and that's tonight's subject matter. Look what I did there. Do you like what I did there? Was that entertaining? I'm stepping it up a notch, stepping it up on this episode. Yes, tonight's movies are gore movies. Uh, exploitation, uh, see, that does, I don't know what you would call this, because, yeah, obviously they're exploitation and they're horror films, but gore, I just don't, I don't feel that suffices. I mean, you could call them hardcore horror pictures, extreme horror, uh, extreme gore. One of the movies we're talking about tonight actually comes from a company called Hard Gore Core Production. So hard gore, I, that, I, that suffices. Uh, Roger Watkins on crack. That would be a good way to describe the genre. Actually, you know what? No, because if the stories I know about Last House on Dead End Street are true, that movie was fueled almost 100% by methamphetamine. So I guess crack wouldn't be, that wouldn't work. Roger Watkins on Tenify Viper. And if you get that reference, then you 100% are going to enjoy tonight's subject matter and the two movies that I'm going to discuss. And I always like to try and hold off on announcing what the second movie is until we get to it, but... I am a mumble-mouth motherfucker and probably will bring it up at some point. Who knows? If I don't, I'll give myself a cookie at the end of the show. Carving magic. What an awful weekly scene. 
All right, all right. Without further ado, let's get into, I guess, the show. Let's get into the the chunk of the show. That's why you're here. You're here to hear about movies. You don't want to hear my really bad jokes. The great thing is I can just edit in laugh tracks later on, so it really boosts my ego, <laughs> and that's that's what really matters, right? 2019's The Sidling Hill by Nathan Hine, a.k.a. Harry Collins, a.k.a. Harry Collins III. Now, I believe the film was finished in 2017, but uh, 2019, I guess, is the release date, the DVD release. This is a movie that I'm happy to have in my collection. It's uh, something I've heard about and I've read about. A few people I'm friends with had mentioned it, so it was on my radar, and I waited a little bit too long to get myself a copy of this movie, but I contacted the director, and he was awesome enough to let me have a copy, and that's that's where we're at now. I got to see the movie, and I I mean, the whole point of this is discussing it, but I'll, I'll spill the beans early. I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't disappointed by anything I'd heard and read and other people's opinions. Thumbs up, man. And we'll get into why. We'll talk about why. Nathan Hine is an interesting guy. Harry Collins, Nathan Hine. He is a professional gore hound. He absolutely loves whatever this genre is, hard gore, extreme horror, whatever the fuck you want to call it. And there, there are so many spectrums to this genre, whatever you want to call it, because you do have something like Last House on Dead and Street by Roger Watkins, and then you have the, uh, the Australian film Body Melt that isn't so much about uh, absolute violence and, and violence being caused so much for people... Being in violent situations, hacked to death, beheadings, gut wounds, sort of things like that, that it does have an incredibly vicious nature to it. It is a very disgusting movie. You could put it in the genre, but it'd have to be a subgenre because the sidling hill and what we're going to talk about tonight is extreme body violence. It's not body horror. I don't want you to go into this with a Cronenbergian, I fucking hate that term, Lynchian, Cronenbergian, Cronenberg esque. I don't want you to go into it with that idea. But in the sense, the human body can only stand so much, and it's pretty horrifying. Now, a problem with this genre, or whatever you want to call it, is the fact that a lot of these movies are driven by the gore. The plot's really out there. There, there doesn't really have a plot. There isn't really much of a story. And the acting really, really sucks. But that is not the case for this humble critic's opinion for this episode's two movies. Now, The Sidling Hill is what you call micro-budget or no-budget, and it took about three years to film. During the three years it took to be filmed, director Nathan Hine, a.k.a. Harry Collins. I think we're just going to stick to calling him Harry Collins for the rest of the show, so don't get confused. Nathan Hine, Harry Collins, it's the same fella. He took some time off to actually learn more about the trade. First-time filmmaker, and for a, a zero-budget, first-time gore film it's really really impressive and it's one of those things if you enjoy this genre and you're a fan of it you kind of know what people expect and what people enjoyed out of movies that, that made the genre movies that are staples of the genre something like anthropophagus this movie has this what's really unique about the sidling hill and what i think might just be i don't know if it's just my take but I, it it draws on a lot of classics and i feel there's a heavy inspiration from Jörg bootgreet's film necromantic I feel there's a really, really heavy influence from the from from Anthropophagus, especially George Eastman and his just this brutish giant character. And when we move into the characters, uh, the director himself, Harry Collins, plays somebody named Adam, who just just in his nature, really in his performance nature, of course, reminded me of George Eastman in Anthropophagus, which is which is completely frightening. I mean, Anthropophagus is a very slow-paced film. As is this, they kind of have a little bit of similarities between them. 
um, moving a little bit into the plot here. For the most part in this movie, the the three lead characters wander around a tunnel. So you can compare it pretty aptly with Anthropophagus because most of that movie is a bunch of people wandering around an island and you don't really get the money shot until the end. The film begins with a really mysterious, gory, ghostly murder and you soon find out it is a dream from our lead character, Adam, who I mentioned was played by Harry Collins, the director himself. And that's a reoccurring theme throughout the entire film that you have this... Is it real? Is it a dream? Is it an illusion? Is he really just freaking out? And we'll explain when we go into the characters in a little while. The movie, right off the bat, too, is driven by a really, really neat soundtrack by a guy named Will England. And, uh, you know, to me, it's similar to Necromantic. It's got almost that romantic hallmark feeling to it that you don't quite expect with something as ghastly as what that subject matter turns out to be. But it's got like a, an art, it's, it's definitely 80s feeling, but more like Argento, late 70s, early 80s goblin. It's like a rejuvenated classic horror soundtrack. And it's great, A. It really helps carry the film. The soundtrack was one of those things that's starting right off. It's like, well, at least if this movie sucks, I'm going to hear some pretty cool synth music for the next 90 minutes. And thankfully, the movie didn't suck. At the end of this episode, we'll try and do a gore roster. We'll try and uh, count up all the horrible ways people die and the awful things that are done to human bodies in both of these movies. We'll try. So in this dream, he's stabbed in the eye with a big-ass knife by a guy in a military uniform, and he snaps awake after that. And so you've got the, the old Italian dream sequence beginning. And we're introduced to Adam, who's played by Harry Collins, and he's a big, brutish guy. He is a Iraq veteran. He's got some PTSD problems, it looks like, some substance abuse issues. He's not handling life very well. His wife has left him with their child, and he's had better times. Definitely doing some white substances, putting that up his nose. Happens every now and again to the best of us. Drinking a little bit too much, hanging out with possibly risque woman. But his pal Harry, played by Mike Knapp, comes to visit him, and Harry's got his, I don't know if it's his daughter or his stepdaughter, but... He's got his, uh, we'll just go with daughter. He's got his daughter with him, and he's trying to lure Adam out of the house. So it's confusing here because one of the characters, played by Mike Knapp, is named Harry, but the director is also named Harry Collins. Well, Nathan Hine, a.k.a. Harry Collins, a.k.a. Harry Collins III. It's exhausting. So Harry, played by Mike Knapp, the character Harry, tries to convince Adam, played by Harry, <laughs> Okay, I won't do that anymore. I'm sorry. Tries to convince him that, you know, he needs to get out of the house. He needs to do something with his friends. He needs to try and get his mind back on track. He's, he's drinking. He's in a dark place. He's, he's letting the past catch up with him and not moving forward and looking at, you know, Adam's tomorrow. So he decides that they are going to go to a place called the Sidling Hill. Uh, Harry enjoys, what's it called, urban exploring? Where you go out to an abandoned place and take pictures and, uh, I don't know, smoke pot. Well, that doesn't happen in the movie, but that's what I assumed you'd do if you go out to abandoned places. Look, it's what I would do if I was out at an abandoned place. But this isn't about me, I understand. So the Sidling Hill, it's a real place. The movie The Road had some sequences shot there, and of course the Sidling Hill from 2019 had some sequences shot there. Most all of the sequences were shot there. It's an abandoned turnpike. It was active in the 40s and 50s, I believe. It connected Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. I think... And a new turnpike was built in the 60s, and it became inactive. Now, before that, when it was being constructed, there were a lot of deaths that apparently were so grisly the bodies couldn't be pulled out. And there's a lot of quote-unquote ghost activity. There's ghost tours and all sorts of things that you can go through and check out now if you're interested in that sort of thing. During World War II, it was set up as a POW camp, so people have seen 
uh, German ghosts running at them, yelling in German. They've seen some military ghosts. There's some construction worker ghosts. It kind of fits into the movie. Uh, what makes it cool is the fact that it is a real place in Pennsylvania that has its own lore. And, you know, I'm pairing this with another movie tonight. But honestly, this would go pretty well in a double feature with Fred Vogel's Redson Tower, which is another movie about something in Pennsylvania. It's about this tower in, uh, I think it's Pittsburgh. I think all of Fred's movies take place in and around or supposed to be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's haunted, and there's a... And to be quite honest with you, that movie doesn't really connect that well with me. It, it's not that it's incomplete. It obviously has exquisite gore because it's a toe-tag movie, but it's just a little muddled. It's hard to follow, especially when the movie kicks into second gear, what's going on. And to be honest, you know, we've kind of abandoned our cult point system here on Death by DVD, but we used to give an actual rating, you know, uh, bastardized from Chaz Ballin, but we called it cold points. But the second we start doing cold points, we forget it for three or four episodes. So it's kind of out the door. But I'll honestly say I think The Sidling Hill is a more complete and structured film than Redson Tower. And I'm trying to say that very diplomatically because I like Toe Tag. And I think Redson Tower is a pretty okay, scary movie. But I think The Sidling Hill, especially from a newbie, from somebody that's never fully done this before, that, that has always been a fan, that has always had the drive and the aspiration to do this, I think as an introduction, in, and I'm not comparing this to like August Underground or August Underground's Mortem, I'm just saying in general as an introduction, I think it's a really strong movie, but pairing it against Redson Tower, I actually think it's a little bit better. So from me to you, from this humble fucking critic, if that means anything to you and makes you want to see it, I hope it does. I hope it makes you want to check this movie out, especially if this is your forte. If you like Redson Tower, then I think you're really, really going to like The Sidling Hill. So take that as you will. Hopefully I haven't offended any Toe Tag fans. What was I rambling about before I got onto that? Oh yeah, the actual plot of this movie and what it's about and what's going on in it. So Harry, Adam, and Harry's daughter, or is it stepdaughter? It doesn't matter. Allie. They all decide that they're going to go to the Sidling Hill. So they're all packed up, ready to go. Harry's got some booze. Uh, a gun. I think it's a 410 handgun. I don't know. It's a, it's a different looking thing. But again, like I said, this is pretty much a no-budget movie. So you're dealing with a lot of props that you have and what you have on hand. And take that into consideration when we get to the gore, too. Because no budget means no fucking budget. You work with what you have. And blood can be pretty expensive if you're not making it on your own. And in this movie's case, I do believe they were purchasing the blood. So they head off to the Sidling Hill. And on the way, they stop to get directions. The GPS breaks down at this creepy... I don't know if... The, I'm not from Pennsylvania. I lived there for a few years, so I don't know the landscape very well. But they stop at this really creepy child's castle that just seems to be out in the middle of rural nowhere Pennsylvania, and there's these odd statues of... Uh, it's like knights, but they're more like block figure knights. And it's just a very weird scene that obviously is setting the mood for further things to come. Uh, the character Adam begins having, as he explains, thoughts that he's never had before, that the universe is giving him this weird kind of mojo that he's never experienced before. That's definitely not verbatim, by the way. That's I'm not quoting the movie. There's no mention or anything about the word mojo. They gather and exit this location, which is kind of a shame. I, I wish we could have seen a little bit more of this creepy kingdom. And then we enter into one of the more eh part of the movies for me. They are lost, and they stop on the side of the road where there are some rednecks, some, some local Pennsylvania rednecks that are, I guess, removing dead deer from the side of the road but one of them uh, is a deer fucker? Yes, a deer fucker. And it's not so much that it's senseless. I mean, it's adding another layer to the, to, to the movie. And most of the people that were involved in this scene later on when we get to this part, it really helped the production where some of the saving graces, I guess you could say, that came together to really help Harry Collins get this production done and get this whole thing finished. So I understand why this scene is there. 
but they stop and they meet these rednecks, and they're they're very aggressive rednecks. But I guess all rednecks are, right? They need directions. Aggression continues. They mention that they're trying to get to the sidling hill, the old abandoned tunnel, and the rednecks get even more angsty. I guess you could say they're a little bit angsty. And then Adam pulls his wicked weird looking maybe 410 handgun. It's like a, it's a handgun, okay? Let's just all say that instead of saying wicked weird looking 410 handgun every time because that's just going to be as exhausting as saying Nathan Hine, a.k.a. Harry Collins, a.k.a. Harry Collins the <sighs> third. So we're just going to say handgun. So he whips out his gun on him and sets him straight, gets the directions to where they need to go. It's it's a it's a filler scene, okay? I'll, I'll definitely give it that. It was in the original script for the movie. It was in the first cut of the movie, so it's something that had worked with. And it's not like it's going to make my review go any lower or make my opinion change on it. It was a goofy scene. I'll, I'll call it that. You know, it was a bit of a goofy sequence. And neither movie we're discussing tonight I, I don't think has any intentional comedy in it. I don't think there's really any deep-seated dark humor inside of it, but there are some moments that made me laugh. And I guess this is one of them, and maybe that's why it's a little bit off-putting to me, because you don't really need to be laughing at anything in the sidling hill. And I think that was the intentional mood of the movie, that there's nothing to laugh about. This is going to be a roller coaster that assaults your senses and attacks how you feel and hopefully scare you a little bit if you can, you know, believe, if you can get past low budget and some people can't some people really can't handle no budget some people just fucking can't handle movies that aren't shot on big fancy cameras and some sequences in this movie i i think came from a gopro i i believe that was actually the very first camera that was used when when production started by harry collins that they had a gopro and you know you use what you have and if you have determination which i think this movie is 100 percent made on determination i think it's something that harry collins bleeds is determination you can make something, and, and he did. He made The Sidling Hill, and, and at this point, he's done several films. He's been in several films. He's got another short. He's got a short film that was finished that he, he stepped away from this to complete and to work on to try and sharpen his skills to get some more things in his bag of tricks, as you would say. And he definitely did, and then came back and eventually finished this. We'll try. We'll, we'll get there. If you've listened to a Hank show before, you know we go all over the place before we actually get to our point. So bear with me, strap in. We'll get back to it somehow, some way. Life uh, finds a way, you know? So we zoom on past the rednecks, the hillybillies, pillbillies. I don't, well, I don't know. There's no suggestion that they're pillbillies. But I love that term. I like to say it. It's fun. You know, I lived in West Virginia for a few years before moving to parts unknown. And it was called a Boone County mating call. You know what that is? You take a bottle of pills, you shake them. Somebody's going to come and run right up your leg. A Boone County mating call. We'll add in the ba dum bum So we finally get to the sidling hill. And it's pretty creepy. It's an abandoned tunnel. It's suitable for a horror movie. Adam is starting to have problems with reality. His dreams are happening. I mean, I guess they're not dreams now. They're hallucinations. So we've transcended from him being haunted by his past and horrible things in dreams, seeing his own death and visions of dead friends from Iraq, to it's happening while he's wide awake and he's having a, a really hard time differentiating what's going on. Allie and Harry both appear to him in zombie form, telling him that he's dead. And it's just really fucking with his mind. You know what I mean? As they keep going further into the tunnel, he becomes more disoriented, he becomes more aggressive, tempers flare with Harry, and they decide to split up. This does get a little bit grueling as Adam wanders through the tunnel, but finally we start getting some payoff. His visions get much more haunting, and I, I enjoy a good jump scare if it's well done. When it's overdone, which it generally is in modern big-budget horror now, you just get tired of it, and it seems to be ceaseless like drone shots. Everybody has gotten a drone, and everybody does the—and the problem isn't drone shots. The problem is how everybody does a goddamn drone shot. Okay, driving in the car, drone shot. Man— 
you could do so much with it. You could really do so much with it. And yet, ah, look, we're in the forest and we're driving and we're following the car and we're in the forest. Isn't it pretty? Drone shots, drone shots, drone shots. Just as bad as jump scares, jump scares, jump scares. But you've got some really well-placed jump scares throughout this tunnel sequence. You've got this ghost that's been haunting Adam, and this ghost technically begins the film. This one is transcended from dreams into his reality, into his breakdown as he travels through the tunnel, which they can't get out of. I guess maybe I neglected to mention that. As they went into the tunnel, it just never seemed to end. It just kept going. You know, that horror concept of the hallway just stretching and just never-ending, you know, the Shining style, really fucking scary. Imagine that, going into a tunnel and it just not, where's the end? You were going straight. It's straight. How can there not be an end? That's scary, right? That's. Uh, I thought it was an interesting concept, at least. So as Adam wanders through the tunnel and his visions become increasingly worse, eventually they all regain with each other and things seemingly are okay as there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And this is where the fun starts and where it definitely gets a little chaotic. They get to the end of the tunnel and Harry goes off to see if he can get a cell phone signal, and Allie decides that this is the most appropriate and best time to suck Adam's dick. Maybe a little misplaced, but it ties together. I do, I will say it does tie together. Now, when I first watched it, I was a little off-put, not so much because I'm against a guy getting his dick sucked, but just because, oh, all right, I mean, I guess that's where we're going with it. But going back and revisiting it and watching the film a second time... It's not entirely misplaced. I mean, there could have been something else going on maybe than blowjobbery, if that's a term, blowjobbery. We're going to use it anyhow. We're going to keep it blowjobbery. But hey, it doesn't matter. So while Allie is blowing Adam, this ghost that has been haunting Adam throughout the entire film and his dreams and his reality finally appears and is very, very angry at him. And what we've learned throughout this time is this guy was a friend of Adam's. They were in Iraq together, they'd gone to basic training together, and he got taken out by a sniper and left behind, and it's something that's obviously haunted him. And It's a constant theme throughout the movie, regret, things that have happened in your past, not being able to transgress or move past those things, or not even like focusing on tomorrow, letting those things consume you to the point that you devalue yourself. And that's really where we're at with the character of Adam, that he doesn't really seem to have any value for himself. Maybe even the concept of friends is foreign to him because he's very begrudgingly going on with everything. He doesn't really want to deal with Harry. He's drinking throughout the entire time, and all Harry's really trying to do is be a friend. He's trying to genuinely take care of something, someone that he seems to have feelings for platonically. You know, He wants to make sure that someone he knows is okay, and the performance by Mike Knapp is pretty believable. You really get behind it. You, you can understand that he just wants to help him out. There's a nice scene where they finally get to the sidling hill, and Harry says to Adam, who's sitting in the front seat of the, the, the van they arrived in drinking, maybe you should lay off that for a little while. You're with friends. You're doing something with people that care about you. So let's hang out. Let's have a good day. Leave the booze behind. And of course, Adam has another bottle somewhere else in his backpack. But it's the motion and the idea that Harry genuinely cares about him. You're given in a sequence right before that the, I guess, driving motion of the movie. It's it's not that all of these visions and all of these awful things are being super focused upon. And it's, I guess, why it's transferred from Harry's dreams to his reality, that there's an old legend. And as I discussed at the beginning of the show, there's some true facts. Well, I, I don't know if you'd call them true, but there's some lore about the Sidling Hill and that it's actually haunted. But in this specific essence, in the Sidling Hill 2019, when you enter the tunnel... All the horrible things that are in your mind and all the things that you regret and all of these awful ghosts in your closet, or what's, that's not the term, all of those skeletons in your closet slowly seep out and finally come back to get you and you can't leave the tunnel, you'll be trapped inside of it. 
I guess I should have said that way earlier before just going on and making it seem like these yahoos are just lost in a tunnel and this guy's having a fucking psychotic breakdown. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not, when there's not somebody else on the show, I swear, I just go all over the place. Like a little ping pong ball over here, over there, over here, over there. There he goes. Oh, where is he now? We're at the end of the tunnel. That's where we were at. We were at the end of the tunnel and we'll return. There we go. See, like I said earlier, everything always goes back to its point somehow, some way with Death by DVD. So Harry is a genuine friend and he's done nothing but try and be nice and helpful to Adam. He's out looking for a cell phone signal. Adam's getting his dick sucked and this ghost appears. He's there. He's angry and he wants Adam. He finally comes at him. They get into a tussle. Adam stabs him in the neck. But holy shit, it's actually not the ghost. It was Harry, because Harry was really pissed off that he was, you know, trying really hard to be a good friend, and this guy's letting his daughter blow on him. That is kind of a shithead move. But what you've been allowed to, not even so much allowed to see, what you've been exposed to, rather, with this character is that it's not just that he's having a hard time. He doesn't seem to want to have a better time. He doesn't seem to want to get himself out of this situation, and he's very self-destructive. So a little bit like The Shining, when they enter that tunnel, all of those things kind of attack that demon inside of him. So you've kind of got the question, was it Adam or was it the tunnel? Which one of these things is the problem? And at the end of the movie, after a complete... I mean, I'm not going to try and spoil everything. I'll let you know that there is some... You've got some anthropophagus-style gutting, you know, really getting in there and everything spilling out. You've got some eye gouging. You've got a beheading. You've got multiple stab wounds to the chest. You've got a gunshot execution. Ooh, I guess trigger warning here. You've got some real great self-harm, at the, and that's at the beginning of the movie. Whoa, guess I should have triggered warning that way back beforehand. I am sorry. Some self-harm sequences that were really excellently done. Again, I'm going to keep saying it, for a no-budget movie, and and at the time, I guess you could really say now Harry Collins is a professional, especially since I bought this movie and I have it proudly in my collection. I'm really happy to have this in my collection. I'll be completely honest with you. Because we're not like pals. I don't really know him that well. I'm very happy that we got to have some dialogue and I got the movie from him. So I'm not really trying to plug this to specifically kiss ass. It's something that is new that I got to see that is really, I mean... It's underground. It's, it's, I guess that's another label that you could add to this genre, underground. It's something that isn't widely available. It's something that is incredibly independent, you know, and it's, it's fun. It's fun to encounter things like that instead of just movies like Relic, which I have no problem with. I'm not griping about fucking Relic, but sometimes seeing the ingenuity and the determination and the thought process of somebody that is that isn't on that level, that isn't, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars into production, it is refreshing. And The Sidling Hill definitely, I think, was refreshing. And again, like, we're trying to spare some details here on the gore, but the ending is definitely triumphant. It's like an opera, you know, you've really got that heavy power-hitting ending where everything just goes batshit and crazy, and at the beginning, in the middle of the movie, it's kind of pacing itself. It's starting to get louder and louder and louder, like a rogue wave getting ready to come at you. And you get hit with the ending. There is a little bit of an old... Twister Rooney keeping the ghost story alive. The rednecks come back and Adam the ghost. I guess that's a spoiler. Oh no, I'm sorry. Adam does unfortunately meet his end. And you know what? I think at some point I said that 
something happens to our guy Harry. Oh well, we're so scatterbrained it doesn't really matter at this point. We'll we'll, we'll take a step back. Where where were we anyhow before we got onto something else and now we're bouncing back to it? It really is like a ping pong ball, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, the visage of the ghost turning out not to be the ghost. Well obviously, who would that leave us with? Because Allie was blowing Adam, so it's gotta be Harry. You can piece things together, right audience? It's It's not just me, I'm not the spoiler. It's common sense, right? It's like playing Clue. So Adam stabs his friend, he kills his friend, and Harry's bleeding and he's dying and it's awful. But he yells something out, and I think it's something that's intriguing to the character. And, and what I think we've learned and been exposed to with Adam, he yells, This place, it made me do it! I was just doing what I was trained to do! Kill! That's my Harry Collins impersonation, I'm sorry. That wasn't good. But it's kind of stressed and focused on throughout the movie that he is really suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the things he witnessed and some of the things that he was trained to do as a soldier in Iraq really scrambled his brain and really got into him and behind him and to where he doesn't know how to survive anymore in the modern world without functioning as a killer. And that's what is exposed. That's what's brought out of him. That is the underlying nature inside of his soul, I guess, you know, whatever is in the abyss, whatever's in the outer realm that was pulled forward when they entered and Harry began to really lose his mind and disassociate inside of the tunnel. So the end of the movie is just this triumphant explosion of this brutality. And then you've got the rednecks returning for one last scare. It's a little cheesy, but you can take a little bit of cheese after the gore extravaganza you were just exposed to previously. And it really isn't, I'm not going to add it as a fault. It's not that faulty. I still enjoyed it. It's just weird, I guess, to snicker. I don't know if that was something that I was supposed to laugh at or that was really the direction. Because again, like I had mentioned at the beginning of the show, the soundtrack for this that paces throughout it doesn't, to me allow any pacing to be funny, to, to, to laugh or to have any bit of humor. It really is anxiety. It really does have kind of a goblin 1979 flow to it. But there's no complaints. I'm not trying to use that as a gripe. It's nothing that I'm holding against the movie. Especially after I learned how difficult it was for this to get made. And that's why I really feel Harry Collins is a director that, you know, shits determination. He eats it for breakfast and he shits determination. I'm not good with allegories. It took him three years to get this done, and while doing it, he did stop several times to learn and to sharpen his trade and to, to get deeper into techniques. But a lot of his crew ended up stopping and not being able to come back for the projects for various reasons, and just kind of almost on a whim, just, just literally putting that shit out there into the universe and having the, the want and will to do something. Some people came along, with, which ended up becoming incredibly helpful crew members, and later on some of the rednecks we see in the movie, and it got completed and came together. And something that was, I think, difficult for Harry Collins was getting this edited and getting it to a point that he could see his vision. And I know there's a director's cut, and there's an unreleased version, and now there's finally what you can see, what you can find and look up from hardcore core productions. And it's something, I think, to be proud of with, with absolutely no budget, you know, Let's take that fucking worn-out Robert Rodriguez story of how he filmed El Mariachi, and he only had $7,000, and he did all this stuff, and he traded his body for drugs. I, I don't think he... He didn't exactly trade his body for drugs, but he did some drug testing to help pay for the movie. I guess that would be the more appropriate way to say it, but I don't know. I like the way I said it. That's a completely different time and a completely different era where things were handled and done just absolutely differently. And again, even 
with some of the gore and violence in El Mariachi, it doesn't touch how much you're exposed to with the sidling hill. So mainstream audiences obviously wouldn't dig in and really enjoy this. But for, I wouldn't even say it's a niche subject anymore. I mean, let's look at some of these companies like Severin and Vinegar Syndrome and how much they're pumping out material in these limited edition 2,000 copies that people are staying up till midnight, myself included, to fucking buy. And the market isn't as niche as it used to be, I guess you can say. There are many more Fulci fans. There are many more Gore fans. There are many more people out there that are being exposed to this. And I think there are so many people out there being exposed to it. It's, it's a shame that the little guy doesn't get as much attention as they deserve. One of the reasons why I was really happy to get a copy of this movie, because I wanted to feature it on the show. I wanted all two of you out there that listen to Death by DVD to look it up and to find Harry Collins and Nathan Hine, a.k.a. Harry Collins III, and see and expose yourself to his work. Because it, with the era we're in now, especially in this COVID era, it's becoming increasingly hard to finish a project or to even get a project off the ground. So when you see somebody that's actually been able to do it and has fulfilled it and has had that goddamn determination to get it done, you kind of want to root for them. You kind of want that to go for them. And what I really liked about this, just, you know... It's a review show. Maybe I should get a little bit personal and tell you what I like about it, right? That would be helpful? Okay. What I really like about it is the fact that it's thoughtful. The characters are characters. Now, it's not grade A acting. It's not fucking Matthew McConaughey. There's no Pierce Brosnan. That would have been a funnier joke. But my brain just doesn't work that way. But you've got believable performances, and that's something that is always helpful. It's not completely dry. It's not completely plastic. It doesn't feel fabricated. And you can get behind the plight that Adam has with just enough that you're shown and exposed to with his character. Like at the beginning of the film, you're shown his house, and he's got a woman that has stayed the night, and she gets very upset that he's got a photo of his, I guess at this point, ex-wife and child up, and she's just freaking out over it. But again, that exposes you a little bit to who he is as a character. He has a very hard time letting go of the past. He's letting the past affect him and haunt him and letting the past direct his future, which is pretty much just going back to the past and being as negative as possible and harboring that negativity. Again, something that is exposed to him when he enters the tunnel at the sidling hill, attacking his senses. All of his demons are what is essentially hurting him. It's not, I mean, I guess there could be two angles. Yes, there is something supernatural inside of this tunnel that is allowing it to happen. But you can have the point of view, too, that it's all of his personal demons that have been activated by the tunnel that are attacking him. And that's, I guess, what I interpreted. And that's something that I appreciate about it is just that fact that there are definitely different ways that you can take this movie. There are different ways that you can interpret this movie and there's different ways that you can really visually see this movie because you could choose to look at it as, oh, it's cheap and you can tell that that's a dummy's head. Well, yes, and you can also choose to go through life and be no fun and have no fucking friends and not enjoy anything. You can look at what they took and imagine some of it, and that's some of the fun even with Lucio Fulci films. When I'm watching Zombie, I know no one was blinded when that god-awful scene happens with the wooden shank coming through and blinding her eyes at the doctor's house. Ugh, it's, it's horrifying. I know it's not real. That's, the, that's some of the point. That's some of the fun. I don't want it to be real. I don't want to watch war footage. I don't want to watch... And there, <laughs> I say that there is some war footage in this movie. It's not like murder set pieces with his just incessant 9-11 footage. Sorry, I've just never particularly cared for that movie. And, you know, Killjoy did the soundtrack for it. Again, Fred Vogel. I think Jeremy Cruz is also in that movie. I, I Just, again, not my taste. Don't particularly care for the movie. This isn't as distasteful, in my opinion, as murder set pieces, use of war footage. There's just some generic gunshots and nothing violent. It's not like Rotten.com footage or... God, do you guys remember Ogrish? 
ogrish.com. That's where you went to find the really awful shit, because Rotten was kind of going out in the, uh, the early to mid-2000s, and you had to go other places. Jeez, there was one called hamandcheese.com. That was awful. Fuck. We're going down memory lane on old internet gore, sorry. But Adam definitely is a man that will not get rid of his past, and that is his fault. That is what eventually leads to his downfall and everyone else's, even somebody as kind as Harry who's just trying to be a good, supportive friend. We were talking about that earlier. All this, this whole house of cards falls down. But the rounded nature of the characters is really something that I, I think makes it a thoughtful movie and is something that I think needs to be given attention because you can see the integrity behind somebody that has tried their hardest to write and come up with something interesting, knowing they don't have the budget to be the next big massive thing. But I, I, that too is something that I think is incredibly unique when it comes to this specific genre, that most movies in, I guess you could call the hardcore gore genre, aren't millionaire, aren't big produced movies. Alien, I mean, wait, one popping scene of gore. Aliens has a lot of violence, but there's, I mean, again, not really a lot of gore. All the mainstream movies, but Crawl, how much violence was really in Crawl? 47 meters down, uncaged, or whatever venture that series is going on to. But my, my whole ramble here is you're not really exposed to a lot. So when you want to venture and you want to go into that nature... You want your exposure to be unique. And me, personally speaking, I can't stand when the gore is what drives the story, or if there isn't really a story and it's just gore. Like Lucifer Valentine films. You can tell me all day long that there is this deep-seated plot about Kurt Cobain and this girl and all this fucking shit, but I don't see it. It's not there. Stop it. You stop it and you shut the fuck up. The Sidling Hill, on the other hand, absolutely has everything relevant shown to you and you're exposed to it from the very beginning. You're given really rounded and decent characters. All you really need, you don't need a super big backstory, but one of the characters, he had to take care of his dying wife and that's possibly why he's being so kind to Adam, why he's trying to work with him. One of the characters, like there's a, a whole group of them, Sorry. Harry is his wife passed away. He had to, he's dealing with his daughter and her mixed feelings and just trying to be a supportive person and understands what Adam's going through. He understands loss. He understands being stuck in the past, perhaps being filled with regret and hate and self-hate and all these emotions and feelings. And he's just trying to be a good friend. And if anything, I guess if you learn something from the sidling hill is it's don't be a good friend because it'll get your fucking head cut off in a tunnel in Pennsylvania. Don't quote me on that, but that's definitely the lesson that I learned from the sidling hill. Okay, all jokes aside, though, I, I really did enjoy it. I really did enjoy, I think, the determination I saw in it. I really want to see more from Harry Collins III, a.k.a. Harry Collins, <laughs> a.k.a. Nathan Hine. I really am looking forward to more, more feature-length films, and it's definitely brazen to come right out of the box with a feature-length gore film, just slamming it. But again, that's something, you know, uh, August Underground. That was the, the first production coming from Toe Tag. But I don't, that's not really a complete movie. I don't really think it's on the same playing field as The Sidling Hill because there's not really a story or plot or any growth or depth with the characters. And again, you have something that is fucking thoughtful, just to keep repeating that phrase, with what Harry Collins III managed to produce with this final product. All right, I think we're ready to get into the second movie tonight. Did I not bring it up the entire time? Did I manage to not screw the pooch and bring up the second movie the whole time? I'm proud of myself. I guess I'll get that cookie at the end of the show. What's great, though, is now we can open up a little bit more discussion because both of these movies have a lot in common, and I think they have a lot of common themes that transcend and interweave with one another. And two, this movie is, this is what we're getting into, is very similar along with The Sidling Hill to something like Necromantic. 
And there is, the Sidling Hill kind of neglects the more erotic and possibly romantic nature of violence and death. But this next movie we're getting into, drumroll. American guinea pig sacrifice, definitely, and this is my opinion, this humble critic's opinion, has a touch of eroticism, has a touch of romanticism with its absolutely devastating execution of true and brutal violence. Some of the violence that is shown in this movie is definitely disturbing. It is sickening. I would go into this with the heaviest of trigger warnings. If you have any problems with self-harm, avoid American guinea pig sacrifice. So if you don't want to finish the show, I completely understand it. Go back and listen to an old episode. There's plenty of them. Hey, buy a t-shirt. That'd be great. Get yourself some stickers. You can get my face on a sticker. Who doesn't want that? Staring at them. Me. I understand why those don't sell. It's completely okay. I'm sure there's a bunch more stuff I wanted to say about the sidling hill because I got like eight pages of notes, but... We're all over the place on this episode, so we'll just go ahead and slide into Sacrifice. So I guess we should begin this with a little bit of history on the Guinea Pig series. The Guinea Pig series is very infamous in the underground gore, hard gore, extreme horror, whatever the hell you want to call it, subgenre. The series of Japanese films ranging from 45 minutes to 90 minutes, depicting various sequences of extreme and exquisite gore. One of the most famous being Flowers of Flesh and Blood, which depicts a samurai cutting a woman into many, many pieces while she's still alive, a movie that was made infamous by Charlie Sheen calling the FBI after seeing it. And lo and behold, the legendary and beloved Chaz Ballon is the guy that was responsible for the copy that Charlie Sheen ended up seeing. You could learn this whole story if you go back and check out Death by DVD Classics, Here's Blood in Your Eye, a tribute to Chaz Ballon, where we had Roy Frumke's Stephen Bissett and Greg Goodsell on the show, and they talked all about these wonderful things. Go check it out. Put it in your queue. And years later, the American guinea pig series was born from the legacy of guinea pig. So, brief history lesson. Abridged. The abridged guinea pig history lesson. All of the films come from unearthed pictures led by Stephen Byru, a really interesting guy. A few months ago, I talked about a movie called Morris County, which was released by Unearthed. And I've acquired all of the guinea pig films, in fact, all of the American guinea pig films. I've not seen Bloodshock. I have to get back to that. I, uh, I, uh, and that's for another day. We'll, we'll, we'll move into that another day. But I'm really intrigued by the company. I'm really intrigued by the things they put out, uh, the movies they acquire, the movies that they believe in, and some of the messages and points behind them. Because it's not just senseless violence. There's not a lot of violence for the sake of violence. There is there is a lot of genuine writing. There is a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of message and meaning behind some of these incredibly ultra-violent, offensive movies. Some of the things that you're exposed to and you take when you're watching these films are just graphic and beyond all redemption. I mean, it's you just go straight to hell with some of the visions that you see in the American Guinea Pig series. But there's a point to it, and that's the one thing I ask for. If you're going to show me something incredibly graphic and harmful and hurtful and violent and whatever, just have a point. Just make sure that there's something behind that. And like we've discussed a lot of times before, that not just Saturday film that Chaz Ballon hated, Aftermath, I think it's pretty. It looks really good, but that's not always saving grace just because something looks good. The house that Jack built, for example. That masturbatorial shit from Lars von Cheers. You know what that movie is? It's him standing in front of a mirror, jerking off while somehow simultaneously making eye contact with you, and laughing. Maniacally evil laughter while he just, like, super wet, awful, like... 
just gross sounds where he jerks off and laughs. And it's like two and a half fucking hours, man. It's so goddamn long. And for what reason? Uh, I'm going to shoot the kids. And yeah, sure, it was funny. I'll give it that. But it's just senseless. And okay, there's a whole point to it. But the point itself was fucking masturbatorial, which like going back to the sidling hill, there was absolutely no masturbatorial self-serving bullshit. If anything, you've got the redneck scene. And the only point, and I can't even take away a point for that because it was really a thank you to a lot of the people that helped save the production and, and, and make the, the final finishing touches on what overall is a really pleasing production. But for the most part, I think Unearthed offers a lot of genuine work. There's a lot of movies that they've acquired, like Morris County, and there's a lot of movies that are by Stephen Byru himself. I actually believe you can get movies from Totag, too, from their website, if, if that helps you out. If, if you want to do a double feature of The Sidling Hill and Redson Tower, you might be able to find a copy there. But don't quote me on that. I don't know how in-print toe-tag movies are at this point in time. But I'm really happy to have found Unearthed Pictures, and it really was from the American Guinea Pig series, so with that name, you really invoke a, a certain vision. You And for me personally, I guess I'm more of a traditional guinea pig person. I think of, like, Mermaid in a Manhole and Flowers of Flesh and Blood. Mostly Flowers of Flesh and Blood is what comes to mind. And there is Bouquet of Blood and Guts, which is a bit of an homage, maybe you could say a remake to something like that, but Sacrifice on its own is entirely different. And I will say I think American Guinea Pig Sacrifice is the strongest of the Guinea Pig series and the most reminiscent. Bouquet of Blood and Guts, though, it, it's an homage and has its purpose and is very similar to Flowers of Flesh and Blood. It, it just doesn't it doesn't have what Sacrifice has, man. And that is a movie by Steven Byru, so I am sorry I'm coming out of the gate shitting on the award-winning horse here. But Sacrifice, man, the first time I saw it, I was a little bit iffy. And there's uh, when we get to why I was a little bit iffy, there's a lot of fucking reasons for it. But when you get to the ending, it's kind of one of those jaw-dropping things. I mean, it didn't need to be explained. Using the term again, allegories, there's a lot of allegories in this movie. And there, it's, you know, transcending and moving with the sidling hill, there's a lot of what-ifs. There's a lot of questions that you want to ask yourself and that you kind of want to ask the filmmaker, too. Was this real? Was the ghosts or the evil presence of the sidling hill what caused Adam to snap? Or was it his own devils and his own regret and his own negativity that finally moved inward and caused the horrific incident that happened in the sidling hill? And when you're dealing with American guinea pig sacrifice, most of the questions you're asking are, why is this person doing this? Why are they driving themselves to this point? And, you know, with like a tunnel in general, you can have the whole thought with the sidling hill that... When they're moving through it, they're they're obviously traveling to somewhere, but they're moving to a different plane. Transition, travel, change. Tunnels can be really representative of just the, the flow and the movement of what's happening to these characters. And in the case of the Sidling Hill, that's very true. But in American Guinea Pig Sacrifice, the idea and the usage of tunnels, which you get one at the beginning of the movie, and you've got sort of a, a gaping tunnel to the other realm at the end of the movie. But the representation truly is the growth and the change of the characters. So what is this movie about? Intent on delving into the abysmal realm of self-mutilation, Daniel locks himself in the bathroom and begins an esoteric conversation of blood and suffering with the goddess Ishtar. Will his sacrifice open the path to enlightenment? It's from IMDb. I don't like that. This film from 2017, directed by Poison Rouge, written by Samuel Marola, 
what you're dealing with is a very hurt person, very similar to what Adam's character is like in The Sidling Hill. Now, I don't think we have a war vet, our lead Daniel, but he's a very troubled man. He's inflicted pain upon himself, as you're shown in slight flashbacks and at the beginning of the movie throughout most of his life. He's been troubled. He just has an existence that he is not happy with, and he wants to transgress. He wants to transform. He wants to accept the black void, the other side. And you can take that as an allegory for death or transformation. What, as mentioned in the IMDb write-up, the esoteric nature of this movie is, is the goddess Ishtar. You might be familiar with that. You might know that name from a couple other horror movies. Am I right? Ishtar, the Assyrian Babylonian goddess of fertility, love, storms, and war, and arguably the most important mother goddess of Mesopotamia. She bears the title Queen of Heaven. Daniel's trying to invoke Ishtar to take his vessel over to transfer him to the beauty and underlying nature of the dark unknown side of the ether realm and the human psyche. So you've got somebody that's really troubled and wants to off themselves, and they want to do it obviously in the most decadent manner in which you can do. Now mind you, this is a guinea pig movie, so there is nothing but the most hardcore decadent violence. And what you've got, and why I think this is pushed to the top of the guinea pig list, why I think this is the strongest American guinea pig movie, which is funny, it's an American guinea pig movie, but it's not an American production. I believe it was filmed in uh, Italy and maybe Bulgaria, another country. Look at me. Look, I didn't do my homework. How about that? That's becoming regular. Not an American movie, but still the strongest contender for the American guinea pig series, in my humble fucking opinion. So Daniel travels to his childhood home and decides to lock himself in the bathroom, and I guess maybe he experienced a lot of trauma. You have this you have this sequence where he can hear almost the ghost whispers of the past, and again, he's somebody that's very haunted by his past. He's conflicted by his emotions. He will not uh, embrace tomorrow. Something of which that is important to take note of is what's actually printed on the back of Daniel's jacket at the beginning of the movie as he goes to his childhood house. He's haunted by the whispers and echoes of the past. He just can't get over it. That's something that Adam shares in common with him from the Sidling Hill. He's just so tortured. And what you learn, too, in the Sidling Hill eventually toward the end of the movie is that his, his lack of regard for human life is truly what haunts him. How many people he harmed and killed while he was in Iraq. But again, something that he feels he was forced into and something that he couldn't do anything about. It was his training. It's what he knew how to do. It seems that Daniel, in this essence, is in the similar situation, that these guys are definitely in the same boat because all he knows is pain and suffering, and all he knows is how to cause pain and suffering, mostly upon himself. He's ready to move forward. So we're definitely in an experimental territory here, and I guess something that needs to be mentioned uh, that's a little bit tricky to talk about is by no means do I mean to glorify or talk of of death in a manner that i i would hope would make people that i hope would not rather make people feel uh that it's okay to 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 do some of the things that you're going to see in this movie so i mean it's it's i don't i don't want to have to constantly say trigger warning but this really is a particularly violent and ghastly film and and just dealing with the subject matter of guinea pig films like flowers of flesh and blood it really is ghastly, but it's got a fucking soundtrack. You know, you can tell that it's not a legit snuff film. There are things that give it away that you can kind of get behind the fourth wall. But with Sacrifice, it does have a soundtrack. In fact, there's no dialogue throughout the entire movie. It's all voiceover. The character of Daniel, played by actor Roberto Scorza, he literally has to act the entire time. He, he isn't selling this with a nice, smooth voice. It is his facial expressions, and when we get into how he sells acting, 
how he has to sell this product and make it believable. I think maybe that will allow you to be a little bit more impressed. So just, you know, covering some bases here and, and being honest with the audience. Again, this might be a point that you, you want to turn back because, you know, exposing yourself to something like this, if you're more sensitive to a subject like that, certainly can cause some problems. But I think we've, we've said enough. So trigger warning, please, you know, tread carefully moving into an unearthed pictures in general. It is not for the squeamish. It is not for the weak of heart. It is not for the easily offended. I can tell you that, certainly. So Daniel, a broken, haunted, hurt individual, creeps into his family home and goes to the bathroom. With only three white candles and a custom tool set made out of railroad ties, he is about to embark on a quest of pain, a quest of redemption, possibly. He, he, he obviously is tired of this existence, and he's tired of what's happening to him in this existence, so he wants to move forward. He wants to move into the void, and it's something that's echoed throughout the film of, why did those that have moved forward not tell me about this? Someone that is haunted enough by their own existence, they're willing to travel space and time in a essence, in a thought, uh, just regarding the ritual he's about to embark on. And upon my first viewing of the film, I thought the ritual was a little bit loose, but upon further examination, watching it again, it's pretty tight, and there's a point and there's a reason for everything, and what you're exposed to throughout this ritual is just ghastly. Now, again, I said at the end of the show, we'll try and do a whole gore wrap-up and tell you all the awful sequences and things that happen to the human body, but as we go through this, Daniel's in the bathroom, and he decides to just just eviscerate his hand with one of these old tools that he's created or somehow found. It's, I mean, it's all ritualistic. Everything he's doing is guided by a, an old ancient text that he's got in a journal, allowing him to invoke the goddess Ishtar. So he slices his hand open and pretty much for all intents and purposes performs cunnilingus with it, evoking the goddess, attempting to bring pleasure with blood and pain to, uh, you know, this mother goddess, this eternal entity that can bring not necessarily an end to his pain and suffering, but perhaps enlighten him. So you've got kind of like a Clive Barker aspect here, you know, angels to some, demons to other. But there's a sensual, erotic nature to it that there's a little bit of love. You can see in one hand, this is somebody that is severely suffering from mental illness and is having an absolute breakdown and is eviscerating themselves. Or you can look at it in this, I don't know, charming love. This person has such an open love and compassion to this entity, that they are really attempting to bring it forward with their pain. So, like I said, it's got a very Cenobite feel to it, that you are really exposing yourself to some foreign concepts when it comes to pain or the possible enlightenment through something like experiencing incredible amounts of pain. And like most religions have kind of a current theme with that. You've got a lot of hardcore Christians that self-flagrate and crucify themselves to feel the exact same pain of Christ. You've got the stories of Buddhists that completely stop eating and become mummified sitting in the same position, and people say after hundreds of years they're alive. But there's all sorts of different pain that people feel for something that they're passionate about. And in this occasion, the person is incredibly passionate about Daniel, self-destruction. Or, in another idea of self-destruction, eviscerating their meat skin, their, their visage, their current self to become something possibly greater or possibly lesser. Again, I'm not trying to glorify anything. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, do my job and share my opinions and thoughts on the subject matter. So with this loving nod to the goddess, Daniel embarks on just a savage, savage journey and destroys himself. And there are some fucking awful sequences in this movie, man. The gore? Oh, it's great, eh? 
I mean, it's like really, really, really grade A. It's it's beyond grade A. It's up there. I mean, people talk about Fulci, and yes, I know it's dated, but some of the sequences in American Guinea Pig Sacrifice totally put the maestro to shame, and I mean that in the best fucking way and as complimentary as I can. But this is the new school, man. This is a new generation, and I love Fulci just as much as the next guy, but when you see some of the shit that's in this movie, you'll go, okay, Hank, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And am I ever? No, the answer's no. You've got some wacky wild shit, though. One of the worst, oh god, this is the worst, and I've never been able to handle this, man. I can't do toenails, and I can't do fingernails. But this is the worst toenail sequence I have ever seen. Daniel goes ham on his own foot, tearing off his toenails, and he doesn't just stop at one. And it's lingering. Everything about American Guinea Pig Sacrifice lingers. When the violence is finally exposed to you, it just kind of dances around like a smoke in the air, and it's really relevant. He has wear and tear through the entire movie. When one thing happens, he duct tapes it off and uses a zip tie to stop the bleeding and moves on to the next. And you can't help but not forget it. Like, he goes crazy on his forehead and carves in the logo of the goddess Ishtar, the logo, like she's fucking Walmart. Sorry, the symbol of the goddess Ishtar. But that's not enough. He's got a skin, pretty much, and peeling off on his forehead, ugh, his own flesh. But that's not even enough either. He's got a trepan. Is that how you say it? Trepan? 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 He's got to drill a hole in his own fucking head. But it's all part of the ritual. And like I'd said a little bit earlier, when I first viewed this movie a couple months ago, I bought this a while ago, and this has just been sitting on one of my shelves waiting for a, a special situation like this. A perfect pairing, something great like the Sidling Hill. I didn't, it wasn't that I didn't care for it, I just thought it was a little bit willy-nilly and it was a bit more, uh, here's just some stuff. Here's a lot of violent sequences, here's a lot of gore, take it however you want to, enjoy. And I, I you know, it's an American guinea pig film, that's what I took it as, it's guinea pig, it's, it's pretty violent. And again, I don't mean that in a demeaning manner, but that's generally the consensus when it comes to watching a guinea pig movie. It's going to be pretty fucking violent, you're going to see some really wild and crazy stuff, and it might not be something to, to write home about, but still, you saw some really weird violent stuff. I was wrong. I came back. I revisited the title. I, I've sat, and furthermore, everything is is much more precise. Everything that he does, despite it being really graphic and just in your face, it is an assault. It is a, definitely an assault on your senses with what you're exposed to with the violence that Daniel is committing onto himself. Because it's not like he's just running a razor blade down his arm and cutting himself. He's really going at it. There's a sequence where he takes a power drill to his fucking leg and just... We're not even at the worst part. I mean, that sounds horrifying. I, I, power drill to the forehead. Come on, really bad. There's a lot of puke. He pukes a lot, too. <laughs> Weak stomachs is not advised. But the scene that everybody talks about, the, the, the most horrifying, I guess you could say, sequence, I don't agree. I think there's a really scarier but... A very quaint and beautiful sequence at the end of the film that we'll get to when we get to. But this is the part that most people write home and talk about. This is this is the part that really shocked people. The dick scene, the ding dong scene, the cock scene. So he's got to fuck the goddess. He's got to uh, make sweet, sweet love to the goddess Ishtar to help invoke her, to help bring her forward. His bloody semen has to bring her onto our playing field, into existence with us. So how would you suppose doing that? Fucking your dickhole with a screwdriver. Yes, I said that as appropriately as I possibly could. Fucking your dickhole with a screwdriver. How else would you say it? Inserting a power tool. Well, it's not the power tool. It's not the electric screwdriver. 
inserting a screwdriver into genitalia. I guess that would have been the PG way to say it. I'm sorry. So Daniel has to fuck his dickhole with a screwdriver, and it's it's exactly what you think it is. And this movie shares some themes in common with Necromantic, mostly the almost romantic nature that the violence is handled with, which I, I don't know if romantic's the right word. I don't know if that's something you'd really want to call Necromantic or Necromantic too. But there is a disgusting but somewhat passionate nature all the characters have in common and share with one another in Necromantic and Necromantic too. And the passion that Daniel is feeling, it just it's sort of... Just like the Sidling Hill, I think it definitely is an invocation of York Buttgreet. I think, you know, influentially you can see a lot of that and a lot of the feelings with that in this motion picture. Which isn't a problem. I mean, I'm a fan of Necromantic, and I, I would say, when it comes down to romance movies, that's the type of romance I like. Necromantic, too. And if you want to call something like Sacrifice a romance, it's it's a romance with love and sadness, and but not so... I mean, I don't really want to pin it to something like Daniel's in love with death. He clearly is in love with the destruction of his visage, of his vessel, of who he is, but I don't think it necessarily is the driving point. I think there is something beautiful between his romanticism of the violence, how he passionately literally goes down on his own hand, which is a gash, the gash he caused of the goddess, you know, getting a little filthy with our terms here, but still you can see the point. You can see why this imagery has been invoked to you, and there is a lot of renaissance classic art portraits that are pretty much painted and shown to you throughout this movie as Daniel spirals and continues to cause the most exquisite self-harm that anyone could ever possibly see. So, but he's got to fuck his dick with the screwdriver. We keep getting away from that. I talk about something like that and I bring it up and then I get into all this renaissance on stuff, leaving you guys hanging. Ugh. The first time you watch this movie, it will leave you with your jaw open wondering how it happened. But thankfully, you have me, Hank, the world's greatest from Parts Unknown, to tell you. They got a guy with a Prince Albert piercing. So literally, your opening shot when this happens is somebody putting a screwdriver into the tip of their penis, and it comes out the end of the piercing. But it truly is magic. It really is an illusion of the eye. It's got a little bit of fake blood, and it is just jaw-dropping because you don't have to have a dick for it to hurt. It just is grotesque. Not that I know personally, but I had Alexander Nash watch it, and he told me, you don't have to have a dick for it to hurt. Rim shot, do the little bump bump. But that's not all. That's not the end of it. It's gotta go further. That dick wasn't beaten up enough. He's gotta cut it off. And it's not like he's got a pair of scissors or something that can easily do the job. To remind you what I said earlier, he's got this awful pair of tools that was created from old railroad spikes and they're all beaten out and dull so he's got to saw his dick off with that which doesn't do the job and he eventually whips out a big old butcher's knife and slap chops that thing right off and this is where the ritual finally is getting somewhere you know he had to fuck the goddess he had to bring her forward with his semen of blood creating a new life from pain creating a new existence from what he felt was his lack of existence you're not really exposed to a, a deep backstory with what Daniel's dealing with, but with, through the few flashbacks and through some of the dialogue, he clearly, it, it's just a matter of, in his thought process, transcending. And at the end of the film, he finally realizes he might have gone too far. After, after slashing his own dick off with the butcher's knife, he seeps into the bathtub and stabs himself in the stomach, again invoking something like Anthropophagus and the great George Eastman. He begins ripping his own guts out while he realizes, oh man, I might have gone too far. What am I doing? I uh, might have screwed up here a little bit. But he prevails, and it's something eloquent. But there's something kind of beautiful about the last moments of his life, and something I think is one of the most horrific sequences, but just gorgeous in the way it's handled and the way it's shot, the articulation behind the shot. 
is, again, it's very invoking of Renaissance art, but you've got him writhing in pain and second-guessing himself and wondering why he did what he did while, you know, realizing I've got to carry, i got to finish, i got to do this, and he's ripping his own guts out, he's dying in the bathtub, and the goddess appears. He He dies and sinks into the water, and the goddess steps forward, and has her new life. She she instantly has this appearance of vanity and takes a selfie to post on Facebook, and here I am, born new in the world. And you've kind of, going back to the Sidling Hill, got this transition. Were the things Adam doing on his own? Was it his own psychosis? Was it his own demons that were causing all these things to happen once they entered the tunnel, or was it the tunnel itself? With Sacrifice, did he invoke the goddess? Did all of this beauty happen? Was he transformed into a new life and allowed to live anew because of the goddess, because of Ishtar? Or did he completely brutalize himself and die in a bathtub? And you're given this just... I know romantic isn't the best word or what I think an average critic would use to describe the sequence, but what you're left with is almost a romantic visage of death, and it is quite beautiful. You've got Daniel rotting in the bathtub, and it's just like a still life. He just silently sits there while maggots writhe and flies fly about him, and his entire entity has become the void, the one thing he craved, his personality, his life, his love, his emotions, his thoughts, his feelings, it's all gone. It's all absolutely devastatingly blank and gone, as... It is, unfortunately, when life force evaporates, when you die, your energy is forever and it can't be destroyed, but all those dreams, they're lost, like teardrops in rain. So did he move forward? Did Adam move forward? I mean, what happens in either of these movies is open deeply into your interpretation and maybe where you are mentally, maybe what your religious standpoint might be. And again, that's something that I think is a thoughtful product that is outlined and given to you by both of these directors, Harry Collins III and Poison Rouge. You have a thoughtful story. You are given enough with Daniel's character that it is articulated what is happening, and you can take either point of view that this is somebody's last stand absolutely destroying themselves and or they truly are evoking this goddess, this this uh, other realm passion this this i don't know transformation into stars dust every man and every woman a star to the beginning and to the end and infinite and over and over and over and over again but being able to have different interpretations is something and to me is something that is a sign of good filmmaking good writing good production being able to have different thoughts and different ways of translating the movie. Maybe you can watch it one day and watch it another day and have completely different feelings depending on where you're at and what your mood is. That helps make the movie timeless and that gives it rewatchability. And something like a guinea pig movie, most people don't go back to. Most people don't want to go back to. But something like American Guinea Pig Sacrifice, despite how brutal in its nature it is, despite how unforgiving in its nature it is, I think is something that is worth revisiting. It's worth visiting if you've not seen it. The entire guinea pig series, I... uh. Please go to unearthedfilms.com. Check it out. Find some unearthed movies. Check out the guinea pig movies. I, I, think, I think our audience, the Death by DVD audience, would enjoy it. Sacrifice has something to offer. Sacrifice has something with its characters, its story, and its display of violence. That yes, in almost every sequence, you are it's grotesque, it's awful, it's cringeworthy, it makes you upset, and it's it's beautiful. It's really, really well done violence, but it all has a purpose and it all has a point, and it's displayed for reasons. And that's that's all I ask for. Just give me a good reason. Make sure that it has a point. And it does. And as with the Sidling Hill, everything that you're presented has a reason to either further the story or the character development, and it's not just there to assault you. I want to be assaulted. I want to feel shocked. I want to feel offended, but I want to have a point to it. 
because at its core, art has a point. I mean, if it's just pointless, what are you doing? You're you're masturbating. You were making the house that Jack built. And what the hell is that servicing? Who is, I mean, I know there's an audience for it, but fuck those people. But who is it servicing? Who, who, who are you even, are you trying to impress somebody or are you just masturbating? Because I'm confused. But the house that Jack built would definitely be another episode of Death by DVD. Initially, there was going to be a third feature on this episode that I thought really worked well with these two movies. But I think, too, that will be another episode of Death by DVD. Brutal from 2017, also released by Unearthed by Takashi Hirose. Really another out there wild film, but it has a purpose and it has a point. A devastating message and it's absolutely disgusting. But maybe we'll come back next time. Maybe if this warrants a, a hard gore sequel, if, if you guys out there in Radio Land enjoy getting a dose of absolutely fucked up, ultra-violent, high-octane gore. We'll come back and do this again, do a couple more gore movies, and Brutal definitely will be one of them. I have a feeling if we come back and revisit this segment, it's going to be a lot of unearthed films. I really enjoy getting into that. Well, it's looking like that's going to be the end of this episode. I'm sure there's a lot more I wanted to say about the Sidling Hill and American Guinea Pig Sacrifice, but I think we got something out there. If anything, please take some time. Check out Unearthed Films. Check out American Guinea Pig Sacrifice, Poison Rouge. And check out Sidling Hill by Nathan Hines, a.k.a. Harry Collins III, a.k.a. Harry Collins. It'd be great in the, in the future for Harry Collins to be able to work with Unearthed. I would be really happy to see that as progression. Uh, God, I'd be so happy to see him do an American Guinea Pig movie. I think this is somebody that is ne- that you need to watch. I think this is somebody that is up and coming, and we're going to see some high-quality stuff out of them. You know, the sky's the limit, and when people like Harry Collins are able to get budgets and able to get crews and able to get some actual work, they can produce some pretty amazing stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. But there's an idea, man. Harry Collins III, a.k.a. Nathan Hines, a.k.a. Harry Collins, working with Unearthed, doing an Unearthed movie. Now, that would be cool. And you can find him on Facebook, Hardcore Core Productions, Harry Collins. Look him up, find him, familiarize yourself with him. All of these guys, I, I hope to hear their names more. I hope to see them more. I hope to see more circulation. This has been an episode of Death by DVD. So there's your horror homework. Head over to Unearthed Films and buy some products. Check out The Sidling Hill. Find Harry Collins III on Facebook. And while you're doing that, head over to our website and buy a t-shirt. The ashtray is full, and the bottle's empty. Death by DVD is recorded in front Son of a beach. We aren't done. We aren't finished. Ah, uh, we were so close. We were, we were so close, we were almost done. We were, we were almost at the end of this four miles of bad road. But uh, we didn't do the gore roundup. I guess this is one of those post-credit scenes. That's yeah, that's what we'll call it. This was planned the whole time. It's a post-credit scene. Shit. Okay. And we did the whole bottles empty part and everything. Ashtrays full, bottles empty. But okay, here we are. All right. And see, the bottle's not even empty yet. There's a little bit left in it. All right. Let's see what we have. We have giant knife to the eye, gutting with mucho intestine spillage. Blood splatter, arterial blood splatter, knives to the stomach, a good old-fashioned beheading, handgun execution, zombies, ghosts, 
Redneck deer fucking mayhem. That's particularly interesting, and you don't see that all the time. You don't see the deer fucking, but it is implied that there is uh, some deer fucking that's going on. And then we have extreme self-mutilation. Screwdriver to the forehead. Skinning. Sort of. It's more like peeling. So, uh, self-peeling. Peeling. Uh, drill to the forehead. Toenail destruction. And, and maybe that makes it sound a little bit nice here, but just absolute uh, destroying, ripping off of the toenails. It's, it's gnarly, man. That is That gets under your skin. Literally, get it? Gets under your skin. I am hysterical. Extreme screwdriver sounding, cock chopping, self-disembowelment, loads of creamy, creamy, creamy vomit, corpse rot, maggots, and of course, the eternal return to the black void of nothing. All right. Now we can end the show. Now it's over. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. All that crap. We're out of here. That's it. On the next episode of Death by DVD, Janet Wood, manager of a flower shop, and Chrissy Snow, a guileless, ditzy blonde secretary, find Hank, the world's greatest, asleep in their bathtub full of water the morning after a going-away party for their ex-roommate, Renee Pucci. The two girls who lack culinary skills decide to share the apartment and expenses with Hank when they learn he is studying to be a gourmet chef. Since Hank is staying at the YMCA, he has no place to live, but they must first find a way to overcome objections from their landlords. Alexander Nash and his wife, a romantically dysfunctional couple who lives upstairs and doesn't allow males and females living together until married. So Janet comes up with an idea that leads Alexander Nash to believe that Hank is gay. Thus, allowing Hank to live with the girls. Find out what happens on the next episode of Death by DVD. This is all Hank's and Nash. It's time for Death by DVD. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.